Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott running as independents. How does this change Canadian politics moving forward? Green Party leader Elizabeth May said Canada should stop relying on foreign oil and just buy Alberta's instead. But why won't that work without a pipeline? And Alyssa Freeman, PR consultant, comments on it all. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott broke their silence yesterday, both announcing at press conferences uh, simultaneously, one right after the other. Jody Wilson-Raybould first at 12 o'clock, announcing that they will both run as uh, independents. Jane Philpott did the same at 1230. Uh, said they they both talked about doing government a new way. They both talked about uh, using uh, the Green Alliance to help them along and encouraged uh, uh, independence uh, away from the three main political parties. And, and something that Jane Philpott said that was um, interesting, I thought, where, you know, people are looking at all three par- uh, political parties and they don't see their representation. <laughs> Uh, which is very odd. Uh, here is here are some clips of the uh, press conferences from Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. As an independent, I will be truly free to take the guidance of the citizens of Vancouver Granville and to represent you. I will not have to try and convince myself that just because the way it has always been done means that it must continue to be done that way. We need political will, and who better to build political will than independent voices that aren't afraid of anybody? I would never have thought it was possible. I didn't lose my voice. I found my voice. And it was interesting listening to both these uh, women talk about how uh, politics had let them down in in some form, and it, it just really wasn't what they... They thought it was, it was and how change was needed, uh, and specifically calling it a blood sport, which uh, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould had a very interesting take on as well. We sometimes hear that politics is a team sport, that politics is also a blood sport. Well, I do believe in the importance of a strong team, but I'm not sure that there has to be any blood involved. And it is far too serious a business to call it a sport. After all, it is the lives of people and our future that is at stake. This is Jane Philpott. Many of you know that that Elizabeth and I have had a lot of conversations in the last few weeks. I think she is doing fantastic work. She needs to be listened to. She and her green team have outstanding ideas for the future of this planet and I intend to be her ally. I intend to work with her to fight for the kinds of initiatives that will save this planet. We're going to do it together. All right, there you have it. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Uh, He has advised national party leaders, federal cabinet ministers and such is with us now. Tim, how are you? Thanks for the time. I am grand, Scott. I, you can probably hear the sound of the street. I'm not out begging for dollars, just walking as I'm speaking to you. So I apologize for any distracting noise, but that's what happens when you're of independent mind. You walk and apparently <laughs> seek office. We thank you so much for the time. We're great, uh, we greatly appreciate that. So uh, it, it seemed that there, for a while there we were talking almost daily about this stuff. There's been a pause. What are your thoughts on what was announced yesterday? 
I thought initially maybe they would go to the green, Scott, and certainly they both said there was a lot of talk, as did uh, Elizabeth May. But I think probably on reflection, they realized for their own purposes, both in the short term and the long term, that if they were going to, and God forbid, this sounds like political opportunism, if they were going to be able to get reelected, their greatest card to play was uh, as independents, because I think had they joined a party, be it the Greens or anybody else, their opponents and their critics would say, see, they're not really that different. They're being opportunistic. They're going to a party uh, that is on the ascension in the case of the Greens. I think also as staying as independents, um, while the, the prospects of re-election, as historical data shows, are not great, they can at least preserve their brands of people who stood up against the system. And I think these two, whatever happens to them, whether they get reelected or not, uh, are going to be in a good place in public life because of the choice they made yesterday, if they want to stay in public life. Because, again, they've not been put in a position to be criticized for compromising. Uh, they're saying we've, we've made strong, deliberate, independent choices, whether they work out or not politically, uh, we'll see. Or are they playing both sides of the street, keeping all options open by not committing? I, well, look, they may change their mind later on, and I think they'll, they'll, they'll get, uh, they'll get uh, the rightful criticism around all of that. Um, I think they have more winning options for them personally by being independent. So is that playing both sides of the street? I don't know. I, I, I didn't hear about it yesterday. Maybe it was asked, but I don't think either one, and this is not to speak ill of them as individuals, but this probably be a natural sentiment. Neither one of them, uh, neither one of them will be heartbroken if somehow there's a minority government and they end up uh, in important roles because as independents they'll be part of any group that uh, are needed to be mobilized to bring about uh, to bring about resolutions in parliament and if Justin Trudeau loses i wonder how they'll feel about that too what about perhaps future roles within the liberal party after this leader i don't think that's going to happen are they uh, done as liberals small- well, are you ever really done in politics? I've, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean done as a liberal. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, do they? It depends what happens, right? I mean, does Trudeau, who was once the most popular figure in the Liberal Party and is still pretty popular in the Liberal Party, does he lose his popularity if they don't win the election? Does that create an opening for Philpott and uh, Wilson-Raybould? Maybe. I, again, I'm not prepared to say never, but certainly right now with the group of liberals that are here, if they were to be rallied by Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott uh, in a post-Trudeau world, uh, I, I don't see them see that call coming for them to lead the party right now. Uh, obviously, endorse, not endorsing the Greens, but certainly saying that they want them as an ally. In the, well, I guess every independent needs to work with people. Uh, that's the whole idea. Um, but what does this say about the Greens that they didn't sign up? What does this say about Elizabeth May? Obviously, she was let down that they didn't join up. I understand that she was even willing to step down if they wanted to be leader. That was floated around. Uh, does, does she take this personally? What does it say about the Green Party? Uh, I don't know if it says much about the Green Party. Uh, again, I think they were, they, Wilson, Raybould, and Philpott, weighing their options. And again, I think they realized if they joined the party, their brand power would be significantly diminished. They get the attention as independents right now. Um, 
because of that brand power, that brand power comes from their version of what happened in, in, in their view of standing up to the prime minister on the SNC Lavalin issue. They went to the Greens, they, the story begins to change. Um, so I think, you know, the Green, Greens would have been benefited, obviously, I think, in the short term by having both of those uh, uh, individuals with them. Uh, they would have gone from two members in the House of Commons to four. So there's a bit of a loss there. Um, but the fact they're speaking positively about the Greens may speak well to the future and a, and a path they may take in the future if somehow you know, the, the Greens do as well as the polls are suggesting they could come October. Um, it was interesting listening to both of them basically say the same thing, but certainly from different personalities. Uh, I found Jane Philpot very captivating, and I, 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 she said something that I found interesting uh, when she said, you know, people are looking at all, and I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember what exactly she said, but something along the lines of, uh, you know, voters are looking, citizens are looking at these three parties and, and don't really see where they fit in any of them. Um, is this a turning point, a tipping point? I mean, it almost sounds like these two are now populist leaders. Yeah, it does a little bit, doesn't it? I, look, I think there's a bit of a public mood out there, and we've seen it in provincial elections, that the traditional order of politics, the, 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 the systems that you know alternated between liberals and conservatives and occasionally a, a different party are, are being questioned. I don't know if they're being thrown out, uh, but I think they're going to, See how far they can push it. Do they believe? Do the, do the public really believe? Are they focused enough on what Wilson Rabel and, and uh, Phil Potter are talking about that they will, in their respective ridings, elect them? I mean, Wilson Rabel is probably going to have an easier time of getting reelected than Jane Philpott. She she squeezed by last time, um, but but I think they sense there's a mood out there. But again, data is always instructive, right? History is instructive. Since I think it's 1972 or 1976, uh, one of those two dates, only four independents have been reelected. That's it, right? And since 1945, only 26% of independents have been reelected. They're both smart people. They know those numbers aren't great. Indeed, the mood is different, but uh, there are certain things that are disadvantageous when you're an independent candidate. You don't have the bigger platform. It's harder to raise money. Um, these two have profile, which may be very good for them, but um, profile alone doesn't give you the, an election organization on the ground uh, to uh, to bring people out to the polls to get out the vote. So they're, they're not without challenge despite their popularity, and history says it will be a challenge. So um, uh, where does this leave the center? Are these two populist leaders? Well, you know, I guess everything gets defined as populism these days. As a, I, I don't know if they're I only ever, I, I, you know what, though? I ever only hear the word used when describing the right, so I'm having kind yeah. of a bit of fun trying to push it to the yeah, left. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I get that. Um, <laughs> But if you look at the definition, Tim, that's what they are. Well, they, well, yes, I guess true. You know, they're trying to tap into a pop, a wave, a wave of popularity they believe exists for independence. Now, usually, well, what does that mean, and how complex that is? You can have a political scientist on the debate on that. I won't go down that road with you today. Yes, but, 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 but they're they're trying to use their their 
personal popularity, is that really populist? Maybe I'd argue to you, which they achieved as those who stood against the established order and began to achieve when they were part of the established order to win. So maybe it's a bit of faux populism, Scott. So if you're Justin Trudeau, how do you feel about these announcements? Well, it's not good. Look, for the Liberals, this is clearly not good, right? Because, again, it gets down to mass. Uh, 338 seats to be contested in the, the next election. If you had these two previous seats before and these two candidates are going to run, uh, are staying in the political system, so they're not your seats now and are going to run against you, that's still two seats you potentially don't have. So where do you find the other seats? The other thing this does, to a certain degree, is if the election becomes about uh, talking uh, on the, 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 the prime minister's leadership challenges and ethical challenges of the opposition and others um, perceive them, they will be continually referenced. Uh, Wilson Rabel and Philpott and other failings of the Liberal government, people will point and say, look, there are classic examples of these two independent members who stepped away from the prime minister of all that was wrong. I think uh, one of them said uh, today in an, in an interview either on, on CBC or elsewhere about, you know, the dictatorial practices of the government. Well, you know, <laughs> that's not stuff Justin Trudeau wants to hear, and that potentially hurts his overall brand among people who aren't hardcore liberals and may still be considering voting for the liberals. Because right now, you've seen all the polls the listeners have. It's pretty damn close out there. The liberals aren't ahead. They want to win. They have to convince people that the... Uh, they aren't guilty as charged on some of the things Wilson, Grable, and Philpott suggest they've fallen down on. Now that uh, clearly the lines, the, 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 uh, the ties are broken between the Liberal Party and these two, are we going to hear anything more regarding the SNC-Lavalin thing? Is that, still, yeah. is that still sealed information, or will we hear more of that? Well, I think didn't Wilson Rabel say last week if a new prime minister would el- was elected that she would, uh, you know, she, if the restrictions that are currently on her were were released, uh, were waived, excuse me, she would tell more. So I think we'll see a bit of teasing around all of that from uh, the opposition leaders saying that they would, uh, you know, make sure that would happen and she should feel free to say things. I think the campaign will uh, mean that we'll hear a little bit more about it, but I think the SNC Lavaland affair, but I, I don't think we're going to hear about it in the same, to the same degree ad nauseum as we did before, because I think there aren't many more cards to play. Um, again, you, you talked about the future of independence, how and for the most part, you know, the, the, uh, the future isn't sunny ways. Uh, do you think these two, uh, do you think their voice will peter out after a while, or do you think they could be a formidable force moving forward in the next session? If it's a minority, most certainly. Um, I, and I, I think right now they are living proof uh, for many of what just, you know, the failure of Justin Trudeau's promises or the lack of um, believability about his promises. Look, I, I think... What I find fascinating about these two, most politicians at a certain level like to get reelected because they believe that uh, you know that that's that, that's what's necessary to continue. I think what makes these two politicians interesting is they're fearless, uh, in as much as they recognize they can take risks that others can't. Because mm. in both of their respective lives and careers, they're extremely successful. They don't need politics. No, they are not addicted to politics. 
the way a traditional politics. So not having that addiction and not having that fear means they are perhaps more willing than others to continue to insert themselves in the public debate when maybe people in the Liberal Party and elsewhere don't want that to happen. We talked uh, uh, a lot about this when Donald Trump was elected down in the United States, and for the first several months it seemed to be... uh, uh, the Democrats didn't want to accept what had happened. Um, it was hard for them to realize that despite the two personalities uh, that Americans picked that guy over their girl, um, uh, do you th- and, and many questioned whether over time they're, they're learning about the anti-establishment movement that sort, of, that sort of put him where he was. Will mainstream parties in Canada learn anything from this exercise? What can they learn from this? Well, it's not just this. I think they need to learn there's a bit of a sentiment in the land that the established order and, and the historical conventions around the established order are being questioned. I mean, we just had a, an election in my own province in Newfoundland and Labrador. We got our only our second ever minority government since Confederation. Two independents were elected there. Um, new, we've talked about BC before. We've talked about PEI, like People are shopping around right now. So if you're an established party, like the PC, like the Conservatives federally, like the Liberals, like the New Democrats, you need to figure out why this shopping is happening and how you get involved in becoming more uh, considered than you currently are other than going into the waste bin. So uh, it's not just Wilson Rabel. It's a bigger public sentiment out there. Now, yeah, we've had moments like this in our history, but... Um, it seems to be a bit more acute right now, and there seems to be more proof that, you know, it's okay to make other choices. And if the public starts to believe that it's true, then what Wilson or Abel and Philpott are preaching could become a reality. Hmm. Is that a good or bad thing? I don't know, but the, the mainstream parties can't just dismiss it outright, which they have a tendency to. Being a Newfoundlander, did you hear that uh, Environment Minister Catherine McKenna was screeched in? I knew I... I've been to that very bar where she was preached in. She's the favorite of my father. And I know a couple of the people who preached her in because it's Newfoundland. It's like being in Hamilton, Scott. I have kissed the cod in there myself. At that, i got to let you go. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. He's gone. <laughs> that wasn't me, honest. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Green Party leader Elizabeth May says that Canada should stop relying on foreign oil and rely on Alberta's instead. What? Uh, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, I'm just picking myself off the floor after I heard that. <laughs> uh, let me read this piece from the Canadian press. Green Party leader Elizabeth May says, Saving the world from climate change requires Canada to get off oil before the middle of the century. In the meantime, she wants Canada off foreign oil ASAP. The promise to make Canada energy independent, perhaps unexpectedly, in line with economic and climate strategy of the Conservatives and Andrew Scheer. Scheer's plan calls uh, for Canada to import no foreign oil by 2030, uh, p- uh, partly by planning an energy corridor across Canada that could simply... 
uh, simplify the construction of pipelines available to move Alberta oil uh, to any coast. He, he sees it as a way to find additional domestic uh, markets for Canada's oil sands in a bid to increase the production. Uh, by 2050, May wants uh, bitumen to be used in Canada by only the petrochemical industries for plastic, rubber, paint, and other products. Uh, uh, products. Uh, you're giggling. What, what, why? Why aren't you buying into this, Dan? <laughs> well, how much uh, How much petrochemical do you want to produce if it's only going to be used for that? Our country has the capacity to easily go to 10 to 15 million barrels a day, or about uh, three and a half times what we're doing right now. Uh, and if you're going to just use that for high-end petrochemicals, which of course oil produces, much to the chagrin of many of the green folks out there who don't want uh, fossil fuels at all, I mean, uh, it's a little bit like saying, hey, we don't want to sell wheat to the rest of the world unless we have a bakery in every, uh, at the end of every farm gate. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, but let's just go to the specifics. Uh, <laughs> it, it, sounds, it sounds interesting as soon as she said, yeah, wh- why wouldn't we want to use our own oil and not, and not others? Because she doesn't want pipelines to go with it. How the hell are you going to get it from there? Yeah, so that was that was another thing was that there was no pipeline. This was going to be by rail. So we're going to be entirely self-sufficient by rail, my goodness. Yeah, we'll get our little uh, electric leafs to drive them from uh, Calgary all the way out to, uh, I don't know, the other side of uh, uh, the other the, the tip of, uh, of New Brunswick or uh, bring it into Nova Scotia. No, it's not practical, and she knows it. But that's only because they're trying to be too cute by half. Uh, it's not at all realistic, and it's... Uh, potentially dangerous, uh, not to mention the amount of emissions that would be created, uh, not to mention the fact that you would have rail lines snarled in this country, in which case we couldn't get any other product moving if we were to do such a thing. So, you know, nice try, guys, but uh, you've vandalized, your rhetoric has vandalized the Canadian energy sector. You've caused the Canadian government to now have a trillion dollars in uh, in full debt. Uh, you've caused, uh, with this same kind of rhetoric, uh, this government uh, increasing its national debt by about $75 billion in the past three years. Uh, now, these folks have really got to take account of what they're asking for. They really want to live in the state of nature eating acorns and really amounts to a policy based on magic and make-believe. And here's why. You can't live without fossil fuels. Even electric vehicles uh, you know, have to run on rubber tires or synthetic rubber tires. They use polymers. They use uh, paints. Paints. Uh, yeah. They use styrenes. Everything to make those things. So no, it's just not. Unless we want to make hemp vehicles, I'm not sure how you're going to do it. Yeah, that would be. Well, let's not go there. All hemp right. Tires. So this. So so what you're saying, Elizabeth May can't do what she's saying without building pipelines. No, it's impossible to do that, and she and she ought to know that. I'm not going to go and assume that she doesn't. She seems like a very fine person. Uh, but this is uh, just over her head. And How are Greens true. reacting to this? I don't know. I don't speak to Greens, and they don't certainly speak to me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they're the first ones to be at the, the, the other end of protests on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, willing to get arrested to stop it from happening. So, you know, I, I, you really have to be careful of people offering you gifts, because in this case, uh, uh, it's uh, it's too good to be true, and it's uh, the devil's in the details. Very simple. As soon as I mentioned to most people that uh, it does not include a pipeline, uh, they basically walk away thinking, you know, uh, they, they, try, they they believe the policy would be one of pulling a fast one on everybody. And that, that's not to be critical of the Green Party. I mean, I frankly, you know, good good luck to them. Um, but this uh, they, they should think this out, and they really haven't. Uh, your thoughts on Andrew Scheer announcing the uh, the energy corridor. 
mm-hmm. and, and, and you know this sound this this to me sounds like common sense. I mean, an energy corridor, corridor, corridor for transportation, uh, pipelines, electricity, um, telecommunication, uh, you name it. This seems uh, it sounds like it's an old idea. Apparently, it's not the first time it's come up. No, it's what, been what, around for a long, long time. It goes back to the 1970s when I remember hearing about it. Uh, so why is this not? Why has this been been put into action? Why? Why? Or is this a good idea? Well, I think it's a fantastic idea, and it would be very much along the same uh, rights of way that are tr- given to, say, uh, rail companies, which have had those rights of way since the 1850s. Yeah, this made me think of uh, the Trans Canada and the railway. Yeah, yeah I mean the the line. It, you know, if you do want to move in that direction uh, and ensure that you have adequacy of supply, uh, and our big refineries can be configured. I mean, our, Irving made it very clear they have a 335,000 barrel a day plant. That's two-thirds of all the plants in Ontario in one single plant. You have the come-by-chance uh, refinery uh, out in uh, Newfoundland. Uh, I helped save that one back in 1998. It was going to be scrapped, mothballed by what was called then a restrictive covenant. I uh, had uh, Prime Minister Kretzing and uh, the Resources Minister and Finance Minister remove that. So we have another 110,000, 115,000-barrel plant out there. All of those could use this, uh, this, can, this particular oil, could make the upgrades... Uh, or at least mix what they currently have with what uh, with what's available, and they, that's the kicker here, Scott. A lot of people tend to denigrate uh, heavy oil or our uh, bituminous oil. The reality is that you need it to make a much wider uh, array, if you will, right. uh, of, of you know a menu of uh, of products rather than simply light, tight shale oil in which you can't produce things very well like diesel or, or uh, airline fuel or uh, residual fuels, the kind of stuff that's used for. Um, for uh, uh, you know, for for plastic, styrenes, benzene—they're yeah. not benzenes, pentanes, and, and other things that are used uh, for uh, in, in the petrochemical industry, which is one of the reasons why Sarnia does as well as it does. Uh, so, will this corridor uh, get gain momentum? I mean, is this discussion going some somewhere? Well, it'll only go somewhere if, uh, let's be honest, if the Conservatives form a majority government, because if they don't, uh, the bloc separatists. The green, uh, you know, uh, environmentalists—they're uh, friends in the Liberal Party, the NDP, which used to be for labor, uh, used to be for industry—is now completely focused on, you know, one thing and one thing only, and that's uh, the green you know, issue. Long before anything else. So, I think unless the Conservatives win a majority government, uh, it's it's a it's a fantastic idea. It would be it would do wonders for the country, but uh, I don't I don't think Canadians appreciate uh, the gravity of what we're doing uh, by undermining and diminishing and throwing away and staring down, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of money that has left Canada and as a result have uh, really done a lot of damage, not only to jobs in Western Canada, but to the value of the Canadian dollar, which you and I have talked about many, many times. It's always nice to go on the uh, the business show and uh, they want to talk about all sorts of things leading to why the Canadian dollar is as weak as it is, but none of them has the courage, let alone the foresight, to say it has to do with the fact that our number one export, which is oil, Bigger than the auto manufacturing sector, bigger than the auto manufacturing and steel sector combined, uh, is taking a, a kicking because we can't get enough of our oil to the international markets. That affects you and I, because of course everything we buy in this country is based on the U.S. dollar. And so if you're uh, losing a third value, it means Canadians have to work that much harder. No wonder we're having discussions about minimum wage and governments trying to make ends meet. I know it sounds very simple, because it is, 
But everybody wants to navel gaze and think it's all about a lot of other things, including rising debts because people can't afford the very things that we used to take for granted hmm. because we are allowing people to block our pipelines and block our oil and our number one export. This this corridor, though, and, and I've, I remember talking to uh, past experts about this last week, uh, this it seems like it could cross party lines because, you know, use the railway, use the highway. Uh, it, it just seems like common sense in the sense that it's not just for a pipeline. It's for telecommunications. It's for electricity. Okay. Uh, it, it's for transportation, what have you. So will that in some way help move this along? Not like we're just drilling a no. hole across the country for a pipeline. Everything's going to run down that corridor. You'll still get Quebec saying no, and you'll still get BC saying no. Um, and, you know, it's the... It's the but t- what reasons can they give? Well, Other than not, oil, it's like, well, geez, well, what about well, telecommunications? What about electricity grids that we're going to need? It's, it is oil, and they don't want that to happen. In fact, I think they'd probably turn around and say we should build a refinery in every backyard um, because they don't want it. No, they, they, it, <laughs> we're having this whole discussion because they're blocking something as simple and as important and as non-invasive to the environment as the pipeline. And if we can't even get that done, then all the other wonderful ideas that we use as a sort of a second consolation approach is also going to meet the same fate with the same cast of characters, characters spending tens of millions of dollars, you know, by various international organizations uh, that seem to uh, smell blood when it comes to Canada, because there are a bunch of nice people uh, who uh, want to, you know, give everybody the benefit of the doubt while at the same time undermining our standard of, of living. Um, all right, can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on the court re- uh, court ruling that happened last week. Uh, Premier Horgan says he will appeal the court ruling. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on all of this? Well, I mean, we explain have... to everybody what he was trying to do first. Yeah, five nothing. I mean, look, he's basically saying I want to regulate what's inside that pipeline, and the uh, the BC Court of Appeal uh, said we're, we're we're seeing through this, Bruce. You you don't want the pipeline, therefore. You want to write. You want to use this argument of regulation, which is sort of an outside way of doing indirectly that which you know you can't do directly constitutionally. And in a five nothing, five zip decision, all justices said uh, you haven't got a case. And so, Horgan and his heroes, uh, the Greens, are going to try the next thing: waste millions of dollars of taxpayers' money in that province uh, uh, to uh, try to appeal this to the Supreme Court of Canada. To me, it's not clear that the Supreme the Supremos will hear this. Uh, they'd have to have really good reason to do it. By the way, that's the 79th appeal by uh, various organizations and groups and uh, green eco-activist militants and the provincial government and the municipal governments to try to block the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So far, the score 78 uh, against them and one for them. And of course, that uh, we'll see what happens on June the 18th, whether Justin Trudeau uh, tries to kick the uh, Trans Mountain decision down for yet another delay because he's coming awfully close to a uh, federal election. Uh, does the Premier of BC still have the support that he does, um, uh, considering, you know, this seems to be now, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to be dividing his province more now than in the past? Yeah, it has divided the province, uh, and it's divided them along, you know, uh, whether you can afford uh, eco-zealotry uh, and those who want to just make ends meet and need a vehicle to get from point A to point B. The, the issue of the price of gasoline being a buck seventy in that province has been a major, major thorn in his side. He's lost a lot of support on that. Um, he, you know, knows that he can't really do much. He has to wait for the Green Party to make its decision as to what to support him on. I mean, they've gone to the point of such extremes that they won't even support uh, natural gas, uh, which is, of course, a uh, very low uh, carbon-emitted uh, fuel. They're having a lot of trouble with that and realizing that the very people that uh, have been helping them block the 
fossil fuel heavy oil pipeline and gasoline pipeline and TMX are also saying with cast of characters saying, nope, not we're not doing anything with natural gas either. It's got to be, uh, you know, it's got to be uh, photovoltaics. It's got to be windmills, uh, but you can't have anything more than that. So he's really, you know, he's really falling on his own sword. Uh, this, uh, as Churchill put it, uh, this no trap is deadly as the one you established for yourself. So what about the relationship between Alberta and BC now that uh, Jason Kenney is in place? Well, I would think uh, the relationship is uh, a lot firmer. Um, you know, uh, Corgan just lost another case. Uh, by the way, he is uh, uh, looking at the issue of gas prices. He's had his public utility, the BC Utilities Commission, look into this. And one of the things he's going to try to do, if you can believe this, is look at all aspects of gasoline in the hope of saying they're gouging, but refuses to uh, acknowledge that he has a very boutique gasoline that no one else uh, sells, but he has. 80% dependency on Alberta and Washington State for his gasoline. And the funniest part, he's got the highest tax jurisdiction on any gasoline fuel anywhere in North America and Vancouver, but uh, the, the Utilities Commission is not allowed to look into that as a factor, raising prices of gasoline. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, this guy's just strange. If it was, this was Ontario uh, and you had a stronger, uh, you know, response, uh, people would uh, would laugh him all the way to uh, the next uh, campaign. But right now, of course, in some parts of B.C., uh, it's okay to twist things around uh, as long as it suits the narrative of many people who want to live in the state of nature eating acorns. Uh, where is uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline right now? What, what are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for the federal government to uh, say it's had its consultations and uh, proceeds ahead with the with its construction. And I think that's where Jason Kenney is going to be uh, waiting. If he sees the federal government again delaying this, uh, he's going to. Uh, I think he's going to go ballistic, uh, and he has the. Federal, he has the uh, legislative mandate to pretty much uh, do what he has to do to get that pipeline built because it's clear that it's not going to get resolved anytime soon. Um, Trudeau, unless he makes a decision on the 18th, which is about a second, third, fourth delay, uh, will uh, will effectively say it's going to be something we might put into uh, 2020, and that's just not going to happen. I think I would expect that uh, by that point, uh, Mr. Kenny will be looking to dial back on the amount of gasoline sent to Vancouver and uh, just stuff the uh, the pipeline. Rather than getting 180,000 barrels of oil in there a day, he's just going to jam it full. All 300,000 will be oil, and there's not a damn thing the environmentalists or BC can do. Uh, being a, uh, a former Liberal MP, I have to ask you your thoughts on Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott's uh, press conferences yesterday, specifically with Jody Wilson-Raybould running as an independent in British Columbia. Do you see that weighing in on any of this? Uh, well, it could. I don't know. It's um, the, Trudeau came in by saying he's changing everything, all the traditions, uh, all the people who have had backgrounds, who are very strong. Unless you saw things his way, uh, it's a new day. It's a new sheriff in town. Of course, we know he, when he on, on indigenous issues and on women's issues, he's failed miserably and he's lost those, that constituency. I, I speak to a lot of people in my family and others and saying the same thing. They, there's no way they'll support him. What I think is happening, though, is that you may be seeing a breakdown in the uh, the traditional party pattern. That's not just true of Canada. It's true around the world. Hmm. So I think both Jane, uh, perhaps uh, the MP for my old riding in Whitby, Selena uh, Chavez uh, may also be doing the same thing, but between Philpott, uh, Wilson Raybould, and uh, Selena Chavez, I think you're likely to see um, a, re- a realignment of our political structure towards more independent-minded members of Parliament. A lot of them cannot speak within the confines of the MPs. When I was there, you could, you could put your own private members' bills in. I passed several. Um, that has changed, and that's not just a liberal thing. The Conservatives do the same thing, too. 
I think uh, the public is getting a little tired of people who are basically voting machines uh, or nobodies 50 feet away from the House of Commons, as uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau once said. Uh, and they want their members of parliament to be able to do more things, and especially when it comes to matters of integrity. Uh, the system is less important. Having effective representation that's honest and truthful and reflective of the concerns that Canadians have, I think, is where people are going. I, I applaud this. I think it's a great thing, uh, not just because they're running as independents, but I think it's probably a symbol uh, and a very strong sign that Canadians are finally embracing a little bit more independence and want to make sure their members of parliament are sent the ones that can actually represent them regardless of party discipline. It's interesting you say that, Dan, because of all the uh, politicians I've talked to in the last little while, or those you know th- th- that follow what is going on, not many have said that. Many have just blown off independents because you know what happens to them. They get pushed to the back and you never hear from them again. But yep. I feel the same way. And I thought yep. what Jane Philpott said was was interesting when she pointed out, you know, uh, voters are looking at the main parties and they don't see representation. They don't represent they don't. them. They and, don't. And, and I'm, and I'm wondering if that is a turning point in Canadian politics. It's a huge turning point. I, maybe people don't perceive it. I certainly saw it in my time. I was very fortunate that I had a party that uh, and leadership, whether it was uh, Jean Chrétien and uh, Paul Martin, that rec- you know respected the independent streak and the ability for members of parliament to represent things. Now, of course, this is not the same circumstance, but at the end of the day, if you were going to stand up on a matter of principle and conviction, you weren't kicked out of the caucus. And uh, I, I would think that if you did that uh, to some extent uh, under Har- Harper's government, but most specifically in terms of what we're seeing here in Trudeau's government, it's all top-down. I mean, you handpick these people for their silence, their, their willingness to remain you know, uh, anonymous. You cannot have a democracy, a representative democracy, without your representative having the ability to speak up and speak out on behalf of their constituents. And if your listeners don't understand that, then maybe they ought not to participate in the next election because basically they're voting for people who are told how to vote and what to say. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic Analyst with GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, incredibly insightful. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, it's great being here. Thanks so much. Appreciate that, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, getting a lot of, uh, of chatter, too, on um, government finally easing Ontario liquor regs and people are still complaining. Why? Uh, that's, of course, the preview for the show today and lots of response to that. You know, it seems like for decades we've been uh, whining, you know, like Ontario's got the, the you know, the, the most archaic liquor laws in Canada. And um, for for decades, we've been talking about, can you loosen it up? Can you loosen it up? And, you know, grocery stores, oh, my God, the world's coming to an end. I can buy a six-pack at Walmart. And, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know. Uh, so here we are, uh, Doug Ford talking about uh, breaking the contract. It's like a 10-year deal. 10-year beautiful deal that the uh, Wynn government signed with the Brewers Retail, which, of course, is owned by Labatt, Molson, and Sapporo, none of which are Canadian companies anymore. So we've been talking about this forever. And, oh, yeah, you know, if you open up other methods of distribution, like a grocery store or even a corner store, I don't think Doug Ford is trying to close the beer store. He's just providing other options. So I'm sure the beer store will survive. But it's amazing to me that we've spent decades complaining about this. And then when you finally get a government in place that's going to do something. Ah! So are we scared or are we just scared because it's Doug Ford that's doing it? It's bizarre. 
So, again, uh, the question that I was asking, government finally easing Ontario liquor rigs and people are complaining. Why? Carol Allen, just six packs. Carl, people are so stupid. Best premier Ontario has ever had. Oh, hang on. Uh, Oh, no, what have I done? Um, This is what happens when you put a mouse in daddy's hand. And he's live on the air. Uh, people are so stupid. Best Premier Ontario has ever had. Took care of Hydro One. Now the beer store. Next, overpaid teachers. Woo. I don't know if I'd say that much. Wanda. Yes, this is a beer monopoly. It needs to go. But $1 billion to break the contract when he's cutting health care, education, special needs to children, child care. Absolutely asinine. Other than the Toronto Star, who has said it will cost a billion dollars? And again, at the end of the day, this is a 10-year contract. And, and the beer store sort of sees the writing on the wall. I'm thinking they're going to come and negotiate. I don't think anybody's going to get sued over this. Uh, Greg says, waste of tax dollars to pay for early cancellation of the contract. Doug must not be getting his kickback. Where are you people getting this stuff? Uh, the contract has more questions than the current government plan, says Paul. Uh, Nick says, this is reckless. Why didn't we hear any of this when every one of the past premiers was talking about doing this? McGinty, Wynn, Harris. Now it's like, oh my God, what is happening here? Hi, Alyssa, how are you? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I knew I'd catch you off guard. Uh, Alyssa Freeman is with Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant, uh, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Uh, I don't want to start with the beer store. I want to start with uh, Jody Wilson Raybould and Jane Philpot. We talked about this forever when the the whole SNC Lavalin uh, affair mm-hmm. broke and such. What are your thoughts on them running as independents now? Well, it's really interesting. I think that running as an independent will truly show the measure of whether Canadians in those respect in their respective ridings are truly behind them or not. You know, when you're an independent, you, what is really is your platform? Is your platform to ensure that the government of the day stays on its toes? Because I'm not sure what other power you sway. Even Elizabeth May went on record to say, you know what? I really think they should have been uh, they should have joined the Greens. I think there would have been more power with that to have a, a party, uh, you know, a platform that they could be associated with. But they chose not to. And and even the whole, I have to say that when I watched the announcement, I, it was kind of odd to me, Scott. Why? Well, you know, clearly this was a very well-coordinated attempt yeah. right down to what they wore. Yeah. They both wore white. And, you know, the last time that we saw white, as a color of significance, or at least white clothing, was when it was during the State of the Union and all the female legislators um, oh, right. yeah, 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 were yeah. white. So, yeah. you know, white is taking on this... Um, but is it that, is it, you know, is it fair yeah. to draw that comparison, Alyssa, or is it just Jane Philpott saying, you know, I mean, it goes with every color? No, they, they, they listen, I think... See, I never, drew, I never drew the comparison to what happened with the Democrats in the U.S. Yeah, well, listen, that's why you have me on. Correct. <laughs> Correct. But I thought, uh, listen, I think that these two are joined at the hip. Yeah. They clearly both decided, you know, one could have joined the Green Party and the other could not have. 
Uh, I think that their messaging was aligned. I think that their clothing was aligned. And the only thing that they have to, that voters are going to have to be wary of, like, you know, especially in Jane Philpott's riding, is that if they vote for her, is that going to ensure that another party wins? So, I mean, let's say the Conservatives yeah, take split over the that vote, riding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it could split the vote. And also... After the tapes were released by Jody um, Wilson-Raybould, her part, her riding in BC up uh, prior to that was very, very much behind her, and they felt that she was full of integrity and that she was trying to keep the government um, of the day on its toes. Yet that release of the tapes did have some reputational damage, and we've talked before, Scott, that you know the further away you get from a news story the more people forget. Hmm. And maybe they'll just vote her in because she's an incumbent, or maybe not. I don't know. I think that race is a little bit too close to call at this point. Uh, I found something that Jane Philpott said fascinating yesterday, and I I thought, uh, as far as listening to the two of them speak, I think Jane Philpott is is ahead of Jody Wilson-Raybould, just on the personality aspect of it. But I, I thought it was interesting when she mentioned that, you know, uh, people are, voters, Canadians are looking at the three parties and they're thinking, none of these people represent me. None of these parties represent me. They become too fringe. Um, I'm being disenfranchised by all three. Is this a turning point in Canadian politics? Because many experts have said, you know, you become an independent, that's it, you're off to Green Acres, you're off to the, you know, you're off to the back benches you never heard from again. Is this a turning point in some way, uh, a scream for more independence? Should the political parties mainstream be listening to this, that there's some there's some uh, disenfranchised people in the ranks? Yeah, Scott, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously the narrative of if you feel disenfranchised, vote for me, would ring to those who support her and those who like her. I'm not sure that this country is ready for independence an independent party to be... Uh, I would I would agree with that. I would agree with that 100%, Alyssa. But is this something that gains the attention of the political machine? Very much the same way down in the States when for the first six months the Democrats had no idea why Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. They could not understand why anybody would vote for that guy instead of that woman. Um, yeah, they didn't, they didn't realize the anti-establishment a- aspect of this. Um, again, is that what brewing? What is brewing here? I think that you have to look at it in total. If I if I think I take what you're t- what you're saying, first of all, we had two Green Party wins. One was in BC, where I think we suspect that the Green Party could win a riding, and then the other one was in PEI, which kind of surprised everybody. I think that Canadians as a whole, you know, I still think that they do align themselves. With political parties, I I think that they think that uh, parties like the Green Party and perhaps an independent can keep everybody in line and raise those questions and those issues that everybody is afraid to to ask. And, and, you know, when you talked about the performance of each candidate, you know, when I looked at Jane Philpott in that press conference, I have to say that I was I I was kind of surprised at her performance. I, I personally have never seen her so vociferous and, yeah. and very sort of campaigny, and it was almost like she had a a veil lifted and thought, well, I'm just going to be who I am and talk the way I want and be the way I want as opposed to towing the party line. So I think that becoming an independent, you start to, 
to see and hear what candidates really think without being imposed upon by the larger party. Uh, so why don't you think they decided to go for Green? Uh, is, it so, is it so they can break free from that party affiliation and, and have that freedom that you're speaking of, although they did align, them, uh, align themselves with the Greens quite strongly? You know, I think that there was probably a lot of discussion as to whether they would join the Green, and I'm sure that both of them, they are very diligent and smart women, they looked at the the Green Party platform and thought, I like some of this, but I don't like all of this. And I don't think that they felt that probably speculation that it was really uh, a viable alternative in order to help get them a seat in Parliament. Because at the end of the day, they can't really depend. I mean, if they're as, as strong as they feel that each one is, that can that party affiliation benefit them or hinder them? And when you bring it down to that choice, for them, it became, let's just run as independents because we, we did what we did. We broke away from our other party affiliations. So right now is not the time to reaffiliate with a party. So do you think there's a lesson to be learned for mainstream parties here? I think that this is a bit of a bubble. I don't think that there is any critical mass yet, Scott. Um, you know, the two Green Party wins should definitely be something that the, the Liberals and the Conservatives should absolutely take into consideration, that Canadians are becoming a little bit disenfranchised, and have a bit, some of them have had it with the um, sort of the parties that always, uh, that, that always maintain uh, the have a presence in government, in, on the federal level anyways. I think that you have to take that into consideration in your messaging. I don't see critical mass in Canadians swaying away from the major party system. But the only way we're really going to find out, Scott, is is after the federal election to see who voted how. What do you think the Prime Minister is... How do you think the Prime Minister is feeling after these press conferences yesterday? Oh, I think he's probably going, for the moment, for the next 24 hours, phew! <laughs> I don't, he doesn't have to really deal with them anymore. Um, however, what they do have to have their ear to the ground is regarding what their narrative is going to be. And when you're treading, when you're when you're going out as an independent, how heavy-handed are you going to be about your former party? Hmm. Do you care anymore, or are the gloves off? Yeah, is there still more stories to be told? Do you think there might be? But again, Scott, now these are just two voices in the wind. There's no critical mass behind them. Yeah. So it's up to up to each one of them to create noise and to create a narrative that their voters or the constituents are going to get behind. And that's a bit of a you know that's a bit of an uphill climb um, that takes time and it also takes money. And when you're running as an independent, it's your money. Uh, so uh, that's the Prime Minister. What about uh, the other opposition parties? Uh, h- how do they feel about this? Are they interested in the story anymore? Because obviously they were when it was picking apart the Liberal Party. Are they as interested in these two now? I think that there's probably less interest in them. I think that the one party that has to worry most about them is the, um, or the, or, or the Liberals. The Conservatives, I don't think, are paying that much attention, unless it's in high, highly contested ridings. And, you know, there could be... If there is a vote split in um, Jane Philpott's writing, the Conservatives may have an edge there. So they may put a little muscle behind that writing, but I doubt that they would in BC.
Uh, one thing uh, we were, we were t- I was talking about the the beer store thing uh, a minute ago before we brought you on, but I, I wanted also to uh, I, I had another conversation earlier today with uh, a Toronto City Councillor for Ward Ten, Joe Cressy, and uh, the Ministry of Tour uh, Minister of Tourism, Culture, and Sport, Michael Tabolo, and they were ta- we were talking about Ontario Place. And uh, I'm listening to the minister talk about Ontario Place and basically no residents, doesn't want the casino there, uh, still wants to make it a attraction for uh, Ontarians to enjoy and, and, and get it back to the spirit that it was when it was built by the Bill Davis government way back when. Uh, and, and then the councillor came on and, holy smokes, it was like I thought Hamilton City Council was bad. Holy sheesh. So then as I'm listening to him, I, I said, it sounds like you want the same thing. And it's like, no, Toronto doesn't have enough control over this. Toronto doesn't have this. Toronto doesn't have that. Toronto doesn't. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I asked the minister who owned Ontario Place, 95 acres of it is the core, the key of it is, is, is owned by the, the Ontario government, but I guess some surrounding lands are owned by, uh, uh, the city. Uh, that being said, I remember when this place was built. I remember seeing it rise. I remember seeing it fall. I don't think this was ever thought of as a city of Toronto attraction. It's Ontario Place. It was something that the Ontario government built. But it did really reveal to me the tension that exists between some on Toronto Council and the Premier of the province. That being said, your thoughts moving forward on this old landmark that's going to get a reno. Well, it's interesting. I remember Ontario Place as a kid, and I think we've determined we're around the same age, Scott, and I swung on that thing, and I fell into the ball pit, and yep. I watched Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, <laughs> at the forum, and uh, and the revolving stage, and it was fantastic, but to be sure, I knew it as Ontario Place, and yeah. even back then, I knew it was under provincial jurisdiction. Right now, there is an all-out war, even though nobody is explicitly said that, between the city of Toronto and the province of Ontario. Wow, is there ever? And I have to say that if it, when you talk about PR, Toronto is winning that PR war. Hmm. And it's because, you know, when, the, when, when Doug Ford ran, he ran on the premise that help is on the way. Well, but there was no platform behind it. And when you run on an empty platform, you're pretty much making it up as you go along. Yeah. So when you start by cutting what people consider essential services, and when you read all the um, listeners' reactions to, you know, uh, the beer store, what did people say? What did they reference? Well, who cares about beer and pop? And yeah. as you said, we've been dying to have this forever. But you know what? When the narrative of you try to take away our basic services, our yeah. services yeah. is the one that is prevalent, you know, Giving us free beer and pop is is not the way to solve your problem. So, in other words, uh, the the amount of people I'm getting that are going, I can't believe they're doing this. This is reckless, even though we've been asking for it for like 30 to 40 years. Uh, these people are upset because it's Doug Ford implementing and everything else that he's done. It's not. It's got nothing to do with the beer store. It's got to do with the person who's implementing this. Well, this is exactly it. And for a while there, you know, when Doug Ford, when the party first came into power... I would have to say that their communications content planning was fantastic. There were announcements, there were things being done, you know, there was that whole make sure that we're, you know, showing um, effectiveness within the first 100 days. 
But then the wheels came off the train. Yeah, I agree with that. I had the premier on last week, and I said, you know, because there were all those polls that came out. Everybody hates him. Every nobody but ever vote for him again. Three quarters of the blah 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 blah. And and you know, I said to Liz, like, just get this guy on, man. And and how does he answer to all of this? And he very calm, cool, and collected explained what he was doing. But then at the end of that, I said, like, have you been doing a good enough job of selling this? Like, should we be coming and banging on your door all the time for a quote when all the opposition is? throwing all of this stuff at us why aren't you coming out of the woodwork to sell this and he did agree that they didn't do uh, or haven't done a very good job of staying ahead of the narrative and you know what happens when you don't do that someone else writes it for you and you know when everybody sort of that was uh, you know, a Doug Ford supporter really poo-pooed that poll that it came out of the Toronto Star because naturally they think the Toronto Star is an enemy of theirs however when Doug Ford stood up in, at the collision conference that was re- recently, the tech, big tech conference that was recently in Toronto, when he stood up in, um, as a speaker at the uh, Special Olympic um, evening, yeah. what happened? He was organically booed. Yeah. Like, I don't think that, you know, the opposition was sending people in there to say, okay, no. you know. But every premier that? gets booed. I mean, geez. Uh, you know what? I think that because the narrative has been building. So when people hear or see on TV that the Premier is getting booed, if you ask any of your listeners why, they would say that he's not doing a great job because he's trying to cut our health care and he's ruining our education system. And that's where he's losing the PR war. Like when the NDP came out with that document that basically outlined what they were going to do with all their essential services, I call them essential services, but that's just me, their cuts. You know, automatically, they were behind the eight ball. Yeah, yeah. And no, they haven't got out in front of the story. And how did they respond? It's the union's fault. Yeah. And yeah. the unions are making the kids go on strike. And and they coming up with, like, this real these really blame game narratives. And you know that there's trouble in paradise, because I read last week that in, their, in the Premier's own communications department, there have been people leaving. You know, two to four people have left. And when you have that many people leave a communications department, and some of these departments are huge and some of them are not, that leaves a real hole in the consistency of narrative. Or it is telling that they weren't on board with the messaging. Or you better call Alyssa Freeman, public relations or consultant. Or you better and- call Alyssa PR Communications. That's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Alyssa. Is it Alyssa, is it Alyssa PR Freeman? What is the actual uh, name of your company? Alyssa PR. It is Alyssa PR. Yeah. See, I... Yeah. You learn something new every day when you pay attention. As always, thank you for your time, Alyssa Freeman from Alyssa PR. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.